0: So honestly, I did not think this day was going to come. When we released the final episode, the series finale, or what I thought was the series finale of Lost Ballparks back in August, I thought that was it. My original goal with the podcast was to find a way to get to 100 episodes. And I think we ended up getting to 60-some. But at that point in August, I had pretty much exhausted all of my contacts. So that was it, or so I thought. But the outpouring from so many of you text messages, phone calls, emails with words of encouragement for me to find a way to keep going and not just encouragement, but also actual contacts. So many of you shared your actual contacts of former players and broadcasters in an effort to keep this thing going. So I'm thrilled to say that in 2024, we are back. We'll be releasing a new episode on the first Wednesday of each month all throughout the year. So once again, Welcome to Lost Ballparks.
1: This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful New Bush Memorial Stadium, and more I tell you, this is some sight. The crowd still is coming in. The bleacher area is going feel almost filled, and the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the 1st of a double doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. The FM Shaver Brewing Company, very happy to be pouring it to you from Levitt's Field tonight, and there should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shire Park in the city of Philadelphia. Just the sort of thing, so full of a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave or two throughout the evening.
0: Guest number one in 2024, Hall of Fame pitcher Ferguson Jenkins. Fergie, a pitch away
1: from his 20th victory. He got it. That's it. Swing and a miss. Strike three. Seven strikeouts for Fergie. There's number 20 of the year for the sixth consecutive year. The famous Cy Young Award winner of the Chicago Cubs has won 20
0: games, and he'll win more. Fergie Jenkins finished his 19-year Hall of Fame career with 284 wins, 3,192 strikeouts, and 267 complete games. He won 20 games in a season six years in a row, was a three-time All-Star, Cy Young winner, a member of the Chicago Cubs Hall of Fame, the Texas Rangers Hall of Fame, and in 1991 was the first Canadian to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Fergie Jenkins. Hey, Mike, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate your time. No problem. I'll start with this. Your dad used to hit you ground balls and pop flies at a place called Sterling Park in Chatham, Ontario, Canada. Were those some of the best days of your life, those days spent out at that park with your dad? Well, yeah,
2: a lot of the fathers did that. Casey Maynard, Ross Day, Joe Zimmer. They were fathers that had players playing on that same ball club that I played with. And uh, they ended up coaching us, too. So that was, uh, I think, a part of growing up in a small community.
0: Some dads don't know what they're doing out there, but your dad obviously did. He played in the Negro Leagues of Canada, was a center fielder on the Black Panthers, which were later known as the Chatham Black All-Stars. Did you ever get a chance to see him play? Or was that before you were born?
2: Yeah, that was well before. Yeah, my dad played in in the 30s, uh, 37 and 38 when they won the OBA championships, I'm pretty sure. He came to Chatham. And uh, that's what he, he met my mom, I think, in 1940, and I was born in 42. I heard that from well, stories. He was a pretty good athlete. Uh, he ran pretty good as a center fielder, hit left-handed, uh, and threw left-handed.
0: Did he still have some of the old equipment? Some of the old hats, Black Panther hats, and uh, no,
2: uh, never did find any of those. I found a trophy, and in a move, I lost it somehow. But there's duplicate ones out there. Yeah, but uh, just uh, some of those awards uh, they're not going to be able to be
0: found. Fergie yeah, I believe you were 14 when your dad took you to your first major league baseball game where was that and what do you remember about that day and about that ballpark? The Cleveland Indians are playing Detroit in old Briggs Stadium. Good
1: afternoon everybody this is Ty Tyson speaking from Briggs Stadium in Detroit. A great day for a ball game.
2: And Larry Doby hit two home runs and the cheer from the crowd was quite overwhelming and You know, as a youngster, you don't really fathom that the the visiting ball club player gets cheered when he hits a home run against the home team. And I think I
0: did mention to my dad, I said, man, dad, maybe that's the sport I want to play. (laughs) Yeah, that was really the moment, wasn't it? That game in particular where you were watching that and hearing the crowd and thinking, "Okay, I think I might want to do that.
2: Yeah, it's midsummer and uh, I'm not sure we didn't have games scheduled at the time. And my dad took me to uh, one of the ball games there. And Larry Doby was like the second Player of color to play in the, in Major League Baseball. Jackie Robinson was first, and and I think Larry Doby was more of a home run hitter than Jackie was. So when he hit home runs, the crowd was cheering for him.
0: And as you think back to that day at Briggs Stadium, which of course would later be named Tiger Stadium, what stands out to you about that ballpark?
2: Well, it's pretty awesome that uh, being at the the ballpark was you know, very large and uh, a lot of a lot of fans. You know, a big a fairly good sized crowd. So I was kind of in awe of, of the crowd because, you know, in Chatham, we might get a hundred people to come out and watch our ball game. So <laughs> that was, I was pretty awesome to see those people. And, and especially, uh, playing that type of
0: game. And it was really, really fast. For me, I remember growing up going to games with my dad. And the thing that I liked the most is that undivided attention, An hour drive to the ballpark, couple hours at the game, an hour coming home. I've got my dad's undivided attention. And I just ate that up. Yeah. You know, that was
2: kind of an awesome thing for, for a teenager. And it was one of the first games that uh, I did see in Tiger Stadium. i seen several more after that. And then I got a chance to uh, the pitch be at Tiger Stadium before they tore it down.
0: Yeah, that's got to be one of those surreal moments where several years after you go to a game with your dad, now you're not in the stands, you're standing alongside many, many, many future Hall of Famers playing in the 1971 All-Star Game at Tiger Stadium.
1: And so if nostalgia is the thing we're looking for, it's altogether proper that tonight when we have the greatest stars in the baseball world here in Detroit, they'll play it right here at this ballpark.
0: One of those moments in your life that I'm sure you'll never forget. Fergie, if a kid who is a pitcher has a strong arm and some potential, there are so many people in highly targeted throwing and strengthening regimens that go into the caretaking of that kid, of that arm. But back in the day, you had your dad teaching you to chop wood to make you stronger and then Terry's coal and ice yard along the railroad tracks close to your home. Yeah. Do you remember going there, throwing rocks between freight cars as they would roll past? Yeah, yeah that was a lot of fun. Andy
2: Harding uh, brought that uh, big stump to the house and we didn't have a fireplace and I had a brand new axe and and this wood was pretty green I hit it like the first time and stuck the axe couldn't get it out <laughs> <laughs> and then the situation with Terry's Coal Yard, that was a, a business that was wasn't far from the house and there was a what they call a, a spur of the railroad that they would bring box cars down and they would load these large chunks of ice into the into the cars freezer cars and the chute was i don't know 65 70 feet away from the street where the train track was and i was able to hit that chute probably eight or nine times out of ten you're throwing rocks right uh pieces of coal or rocks and yeah (laughs) and i did get in trouble because the fact that i'd hit the chute the rock or the coal will go down the chute and get frozen in the ice (laughs) and that's not what uh (laughs) <laughs> the railroad <laughs> people wanted to see all, all those rocks and, and these big chunks of ice that came out to well, part of that uh, a
0: freezer car. Probably the beginning, the shaping of making you the accurate pitcher you would become. Oh, definitely. I, you know, I it didn't always happen in that particular situation
2: where I could do it one after one time after the other. It probably took a little while throwing rocks. At, probably at the age of 12, 13 years old, I was doing that. And then as I got older, I was able to, to be a little more accurate.
0: Fergie, you played at some historic minor league ballparks during spring training and your first years in minor league baseball, including Jack Russell Stadium in Clearwater, Florida, and Ingle Stadium in Chattanooga. Any memories of those two ballparks?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, the, as a kid growing up, you know, my first uh, opportunity to get invited to big league camp was in 1963, and I played there in, in Clearwater. And just having that opportunity to put that Philadelphia uniform on for the first time and run out on the field and be a part of spring training, uh, it was it was an awesome situation. I'm 19, I think maybe going to be 20, and then uh, the old ballpark in Chattanooga where I played Double A ball, a ballpark that probably held maybe two or three thousand fans, and it's pretty historic. I played in that old Birmingham park too, uh, where the Birmingham Black Barons played, and, and then uh, in Birmingham, and that was the Oakland uh, home field for the old Oakland team. But, you know, some of those old stadiums were part of the of the history of baseball, and I had, had an opportunity to play in quite a few of them.
0: In the early 60s, you played with Dick Allen in Little Rock, Arkansas for the Little Rock Travelers. Reverend Rivers and his wife welcomed you and some of your teammates into their home, provided you guys with some home-cooked meals. But outside of that house, outside of that neighborhood, there was very little that was welcoming in Little Rock for you and your teammates. The first time you show up at Traveler's Field, I think there was a sign in the locker room that said no black ball players on the team. I, I don't know how you or Dick Allen or some of the other guys faced that day after day and just stuck with it.
2: Well, you know, adversity is, is part of any kind of situation. And in that uh, case in 19, I think it was 64, there was Dick Allen, Marcelina Lopez and Richard Quito and myself, uh, four players of color on that ball club. A lot of the signs were at the airport when we landed. And Frank Lucchese was our manager. He took us aside and said, young man, don't let this bother you. And it it did bother Dick because he was a player that played regular. He he was a regular player. He played center field for the the Travelers those first couple of months before they switched him to third base. He had to be on the field day in and day out. So I I think that hurt him more than possibly myself because I, I only stayed a month and a half. That first year. And then they, they sent me back to Chattanooga. Richard Kiddo stayed the whole year, and so did Marcelino. And then I joined him later on uh, when, when the call ups are in September. It was something that you felt safe on the field, but there was always that adversity, especially you see signs white washrooms, black washrooms, same thing with white fountains, black fountains. And all the players knew that the fans of color had to go down the right field line to watch the ballgame. And that's where they had to stay.
0: I've heard you talk about how Dick at one point wanted to or was thinking about going home, but you guys stuck with it immersively. The Phillies call you up and, and you collect your first win at Connie Mack Stadium on September 10th, 1965. Well, what do you remember about that day? I mean, here you are in the big leagues and, and you're facing Bob Gibson. Bob Gibson is on the mound for the Cardinals. There go the Cardinals on the field and here
1: for the play-by-play of the ball game. and his good evening to you is Harry Carey. Thank you, Jack. Hello again, everybody. All set to play baseball here.
2: Right. Uh, there, there was like uh, I think maybe six of us that that had the call-up. Uh, Richard Quito, Marcelino, Alex Johnson, Adolfo Phillips, Billy Sorrell, and we're all in the bullpen and we'd already been with the ball club a couple of days and I wasn't sure if I was going to get an opportunity to to show what I could do uh, being called, being called up. But Jim Bunning is facing the Cardinals and his opponent is Bob Gibson. And he gets in trouble in the, in the third inning. And Bob Otis is our bullpen coach. And he says, Jenkins, get up. So I got up, started warming up. uh, (laughs) Bunning got out of the inning (laughs) and same situation happened. I think in the, in the sixth or the seventh, I got up, he got in a little more trouble and i was called into the ball game uh, you know as a kid you know you're 21 it's it's overwhelming in, in some cases but it, but it's not it's what you were looking forward to doing and that that was going to be your career as a as a pitcher get out there and show exactly what your capabilities were i i remember running in getting the ball from gene mock and and jim bunning said hey Show him what you can do, kid, like that. And then he walked off. And I'm not even sure who my first hitter was. I think it was Dick Grote. I struck him out on four pitches. And the inning's over. I pitched, uh, I think, three or four more innings. Cookie Rojas got the big hit. And he drove in the run that that won the ballgame for me in, in the 10th inning. And Gibson was still there uh, pitching at the time. And I ended up winning the ballgame.
0: As a 21-year-old, you're walking off the field thinking, probably, hey, if I can beat Bob Gibson... I can beat anybody. Well,
2: at the time, I didn't think about that situation. But, you know, uh, winning the ball game, your first major league appearance, your first major league win, it uh, was pretty awesome. And I I think I, when the game was over, I pulled my dad later on that evening and let him know that I'd won my first
0: game in the big leagues. Yeah. And didn't you in the clubhouse? Because, you know, you had seen these uniforms as a kid on baseball cards and whatnot didn't you run your fingers over the the embroidery of the phillies the front of the the of the uniform
2: yeah it was quite it was quite a uniform uh most of the uniforms were printed uh, uh numbers but this was embroidered and and i had an opportunity to get dallas greens number he was number 46 we we're basically the same height and weight uh 6'4 65 200 pounds. and i got his uniform and that, that's the number I wore the remainder of that year, number 46.
0: Your sweet mom, who I've heard you talk about a lot, uh, lost her eyesight from complications during childbirth. So when you finally made it to the big leagues, how important were those radio broadcasts to bringing your play and, and your games to life for her?
2: Well, you know, after I got traded uh, from the Phillies to the Cubs, my dad and quite a few uh, gentlemen that were connected in baseball in Chatham would arrange uh, a lot of times for bus loads of people to to go from Chatham and uh, to go to Wrigley Field and get the opportunity to see ball games. And uh, I think probably four or five times I had that opportunity to pitch. And my mom had the, a transistor radio. She would listen to the games uh, with an earphone.
1: Looks like we're going to have a full house this afternoon. I'm Jack Brickhouse. Stay with us. It's going to be a great day in Chicago.
2: And she could pretty much tell how I was pitching by by the crowd or by the announcer.
1: Round ball, Hickman takes it, Berge over the cover. It's an out, and the ball game is all over. The Cubs win it 2-1. to one. A beautiful opening day win for the Cubs and Ferguson Jenkins.
2: I'm pretty sure all the games that she attended, I never lost. So I was pretty fortunate
0: wow. to have my family there at the time you were traded to the Cubs in April of 1966. You and your wife drive your big brown Bonneville <laughs> all the way through the night to get to Chicago. I think you made it to Wrigley Field in the morning and the first person you meet in the clubhouse, do you remember?
2: That's Yosh Kawano. Yeah, he's our clubhouse guy and I think Ernie Banks was there. Hey, hey,
1: holy mackerel, no doubt about it, the Cubs are on
0: their way. Ernie Banks, one of your favorite players, and I think he was your favorite baseball card, and now you're standing face-to-face with him in the uh, in the clubhouse at, on the same team.
2: Right. Yeah, there were so many things that a, a kid did uh, as, a, as a youngster, and you can recall some of them, but I know Ernie Banks, I had quite a few cards of him and, and some of the other major league players, but And now I got a chance to be his teammate, and then, then later on, I think in 1967 we became roommates. So, baseball is a sport that it humbles you in some respects because the fact that you play so many games, there's so many players of notoriety that you get a chance to meet and play against. It's something that you know you don't ever forget, especially facing some of the really, really, really good hitters back then, like Mickey Mantle and all these guys. I mean, these guys were awesome players. And you're a rookie <laughs> and you're you're getting that opportunity to, to do exactly what you wanted to do as a kid. And that it's not a dream. It's reality that happens to you. And there it is face to face with some of the best players that play the game.
0: Tell me about that first time walking out uh, from the clubhouse through the dugout and out into the green pasture of Wrigley Field.
2: Well, it's an awesome place. It really hasn't changed a whole lot. Most of my career or all my career was all day baseball. So you had to be dressed and on the field at 9.15. The game started like one o five, and double hitters on Sunday started noon. So it's it's an awesome place to travel there and to see the fans because we weren't a ball club that won a lot of ball games the first two years, 66 and 67. And we got better as we played because the players, you know, I think they felt comfortable playing and we had a great manager, Leo DeRocher, and and before long we started really winning as a as a unit. But to play in, in an historic ballpark like Wrigley Field, one of the oldest parks in baseball,
0: it was pretty awesome. You and uh Hall of Famer Billy Williams used to carpool together. He would pick you up in his Buick Wildcat and drive to Wrigley Field. Those must have been some fun rides to the to the ball game it was. You know, we kind of
2: carpooled from time to time. I might do it a few times. I had George Altman pick me up a few times. Uh we'd go to the park, maybe three of us, all the way from the south side of Chicago, hit the outer drive and get off on maybe Clark or uh or Belmont and then go back right up to the to Wrigley Field and
0: and park. I was talking with Billy Williams last year about just how different the parking situation was then versus now. Back then, there wasn't like this secure player parking lot. You parked across the street and walked through scores of fans.
1: And you have to sign about 10 or 15 autographs. And all of a sudden you say, well, we got to go now. And you did that every day.
0: There was this unlimited access that fans had to players that there really is nothing like that now. No, you're right. It
2: was kind of a, that had a small parking lot for the players. And as you said, the fans would be waiting to get autographs prior to the game and then after the game. So it it was up to you if you wanted to sign or get in the park as quick as possible. But, I mean, they were just fans that wanted autographs a lot of times from players. And I was unknown then. So a lot of of the players that were ahead of me, like Ernie and Billy and, and Ronnie and Glenn Becker, those guys were players that were on that ball club prior to me. So they wanted their autograph more than
1: they wanted a rookie, believe me.
0: The following season, you played in your first All-Star game at Anaheim Stadium.
1: The crowd in Anaheim's beautiful new $24 million
0: stadium completed only last year is in a gay holiday mood. I gotta believe that the highlight of that experience was coming face to face with number seven. Bauer
1: sends Mickey Mantle to the plate as a pinch hitter and the crowd gives the great Yankee star a standing ovation. It's the 15th All-Star appearance for Mantle, a three-time Most Valuable Player, Triple Crown Batting Champion in 1956, and holder of numerous World Series records. Uh,
2: I came in from uh, the bullpen, and I relieved Juan Marichal. And they announced Mickey Mantle pinch hitting for so-and-so. And And I'm on the mound. I pretty much know who this gentleman is. So (laughs) I'm out there. You know, baseball is a sport where you don't get I think unnerved because you have gotten your mindset that you're going to go out there and do a good job. That's the number one thing that you think about before anything else. You understand what your job is coming out of the bullpen. And at the time I was a starter with, with with the Cubs, but they had me as a second pitcher in that all-star game. So I knew what I was supposed to do, go out there and throw strikes. Uh, And at the time, the score was, uh, I think, one uh, nothing for the National League. I did give up a home run later on in that game. <laughs> that was a tie. Uh, I think in the, like, the the sixth inning that made the, the score tied. But I knew what my job was to do was to throw strikes, try to end the inning, and be successful doing it.
1: And you strike out Mickey Mantle. Jenkins looks around at second base where Yastrzewski represents the tying run. And then the lanky cub hurler unwinds his six-foot-five frame and fires a fastball. Mickey is caught looking at it for a third strike. It's just got the
2: outside corner of the plate. And the umpire rang him up, and I was pretty ha- happy with the situation. You run off the field, and you want to get to the dugout as quick as possible.
0: You talk about how the Cubs weren't necessarily a great hitting team those first couple of years. In 68, they were especially a weak hitting team. And I think there came a point in the middle of the season where you're literally getting no run support at all. You'd been shut out for the fifth or sixth time. And so you decide, I love this story so much, Fergie. You decide to make a sacrifice at Wrigley Field.
2: Yeah, I'd gotten shut out uh, by Drysdale. He, He had that 52 shutout inning streak. So I go to the ballpark early, and Yosh Kawano is uh, our clubhouse, man. I say, Yosh, where's all the guys doing with their broken bats? And he had a big barrel of, of bats. And you know, a lot of times the bats, they're covered with pine tar. And So I put them in a teepee out there in left field, put some paper underneath them, and I lit the, the bats on fire. The guys are coming to the clubhouse. They wanting to where, know where, where's all the smoke coming from? And somebody says, Oh, Jenkins is burning your bats because you're not using them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I made the headlines in a paper the next day. Yeah, Jenkins talking... burns
0: teammates' bats. <laughs> yeah, they're saying something like, Hey, you you're burning our bats. Why are you doing that? You're like, Well, you're not using them, so I'm using them for firewood.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. I had to basically calm a few guys down. I said, I'm not burning your game bats. These are right, these are bats that are cracked or broken.
0: <laughs> right. Oh, it's such a great story. In 1969. Giants Hall of Famer Willie McCovey was hitting everyone.
1: Swung on, hit deep to right field, and there goes 5-5, baby. It's number 300 for Willie McCovey.
0: He won the MVP that season. I think he hit you pretty good at Wrigley. And then when the Cubs made the trip to Candlestick...
2: Yeah, I, got, I get to the ballpark. Excuse me, I get to the hotel. He sent a limousine uh, for me to get picked up. Wanted to make sure I got to the ballpark safe. <laughs> because the fact that... I uh, starting that night against Gaylord Perry. Yes.
0: You get there and you tell your catcher, Randy Hunley. Well,
2: I, to, I, I think I told Randy, I said, hey, Randy, we we got to do something to maybe uh, counteract McCovey hit me so good. Tell him what's coming. <laughs> and <laughs> Randy, Randy was going, are you crazy? I said, go ahead, tell him what's coming. And I'm not sure of the outcome. I think oh, you yeah. went 0 for 3. Yeah, 0 for 3 that night. I mean, it's a story that, that you remember. And the story's true. You know, even though (laughs) even though a lot of people won't believe it, you're going to tell a hitter what's coming. And that
0: situation happened. By 1974, Fergie, you're a Texas Ranger. The Rangers play their home games at Turnpike Stadium, which would later be called Arlington Stadium. How on earth did you stay cool pitching at games in what many have described as a human frying pan?
2: Yeah, that that was an open stadium uh, right beside the Turnpike uh, Highway 30. Uh, there were a lot of games that well over hundred degrees, especially playing day games. And even at, at, at night, the temperature was still maybe in the nineties and Texas uh, was having some heat waves at different times during the summer. And I kind of tried to intimidate the hitter by when I wore a long sleeve shirt, every game I ever pitched in. And I would go out there with a long sleeve and I'd always ran to the mound and, and ran after the inning when it was over, ran back to the dugout only because of the fact that I think I was in pretty good shape. Pitching there in that old Turnpike Stadium and having some success was was a lot of fun.
0: And in addition to the heat, there were some pests that you would have to contend with on a nightly basis that were of biblical proportions, right? Yeah, well, one incident
2: happened. Uh, the grasshoppers invaded the outfield and they just swarmed. And then they end up coming towards home plate and at any place that had grass they they wanted to be with. And we're and talking thousands, right? There were a lot of... They had to stop the game for at least an hour. And I think uh, the ground crew uh, had some kind of spray and finally got rid of most of them.
0: In 74, Fergie, you won 25 games, but really should have been 26. It would have been, if not for 10-cent beer night at Cleveland Municipal Stadium, which is, has to go down as one of the craziest nights of your career.
1: This has been a night of and stupidity.
2: A night you can remember, uh, ten cent beer night. I think the series before that with Cleveland, we had gotten into a fight, and I'm trying to think of the pitcher. Milt Wilcox was the pitcher for the Tigers. Oh right, he yeah. knocked down he knocked down Lenny Randall, and Lenny Randall bunted the ball down the first base line instead of running to the bag, he ran over the pitcher Milt Wilcox because Lenny was a college player for Arizona State, a running back and he ran right over Wilcox. Okay. And the end result, the melee, a fight breaks out. And this fight goes on for like 20 minutes. We're just everybody's on the field. 25 players from each team. So, we're going to Cleveland. One of the announcers with the Cleveland uh press or radio said it's going to be get Billy Martin night. <laughs> so, it just so happens it was 10 cent beer night and people were Intoxicated. Now there's another group of morons running around in the outfield. I end up leading the ball game. Uh, I think uh, in about the sixth inning, I'm winning like five to two or five to three. And Lenny Randall stepped on my foot when I went to back up third base. He's playing third base. Took me out of the ball game. So I really didn't see the riot until. Yeah, because didn't I'm you have si- to go to the hospital? I'm, I'm sitting on a gurney in a clean in a clinic not far from the ballpark. Yeah. Doors swing open. And a woman's got a, a towel wrapped around her head. She's got hit with a chair. A guy got uh, into a fight with somebody, and everybody is coming in and says it's a riot in Cleveland Stadium. Now it's a full-scale riot. There has to be 200 people and more coming on the field. And I'm still waiting, sitting on this gurney for this doctor to stitch up my foot. But when I got back to the to the hotel. Jim Bimby was my roommate. He gave me a blow-by-blow description of what happened. of Guys running on the field, the right field with bats try to protect Jeff Burrell. Somebody tried to get his hat. Uh, there was streakers. Oh, it, it was a crazy night. The only reason I didn't win the ball game is because Cleveland tied it up in the eighth of the ninth. And then the umpire got hit with something. I'm not sure of his name. He gave the win to the ball club. He, the, uh, basically, the game was protested and the team got the win. Not yeah,
0: me. Right. <laughs> Unbelievable. I think because
2: of the fact that Cleveland wasn't uh, getting a large attendance. Yeah. And uh, it, and it just so happened that we'd gotten into a fight the series before that. It was almost four or five days. that, uh, And then they publicized that this was going to be
0: get Billy Martin night. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Fergie, May 5th, 1982, at San Diego's Jack Murphy Stadium, you strike out Gary Templeton to record your 3,000th strikeout. Here's the pit.
1: The 3,000th strikeout of his career. Gary Templeton goes down swinging, and Ferguson Jenkins being congratulated throws the baseball into the dugout.
2: You know, it was it was an awesome night. I had uh, the series before that in in uh, L.A. I'd strike out maybe five or six players and pitch maybe eight or nine innings. I'm not sure uh, if I completed the ball game or not. But going into San Diego it was publicized that not one of the players on that team wanted to be part of that that history making situation. <laughs> Guys were bunning the ball off me in the first and first or second inning. They didn't want to strike out, so I think it was maybe in the fourth inning that Gary Templeton uh was at the plate, and he took a call third strike, and Jody Davis was the catcher at the time, and he ran out there and gave me the ball. <laughs> And that was, that was another situation where history is part of the game and you know, it's going to happen, yeah. but when, you know, you're not sure when it's going to happen.
0: I love the look on your face as people are coming out to kind of congratulate you.
1: All of his teammates coming out to shake his hand. The photographers are out there.
0: You're like, Hey, I'm still pitching. Go back to your, go back to your position. Yeah. yeah. You know, I was, I, I was really
2: surprised at the time that the guys would be that surprised that, or that at uh, in awe of, of me striking out 3,000 batters, but everybody's running. I think uh, at the time, Leon Durham was the first baseman. Kennedy was second base. I'm not sure what's second and short, but everybody's running into the in, into the infield after Jody had walked out there to the mound to give me the ball.
0: So Fergie, in 1991, you're inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Joe there. Ted Williams is there. Been 50 years since he hit 406. Willie Mays, Ernie Banks, Duke Snyder. And now here you are, ready to become one of them, one of the true legends of the game, immortalized in the Baseball Hall of Fame.
2: Well, you know, uh, there's three of us, uh, Rod Carew, Gaylord Perry, and myself, and we're in, in the Otisaga Hotel uh, in the leather stocking room, they called it. And all the players have to meet there before the, the bus picks us up. And some of the players that were there at the time, Stan Musial, Duke Schneider, and in Joe DiMaggio, and second walks in Ted Williams, and I'm sitting by Gaylord. And I said, "Gaylord, man, I got to get a baseball. I need to get these guys." <laughs> I end up getting a ball. I'm not sure if it took five, six minutes. I was talking to somebody. I need a baseball, and I end up getting uh, Ted Williams to sign at first. And Joe DiMaggio was late getting on the bus, so I waited for him. I was standing there. And I said, Joe, I'd really like to get your signature on this baseball with Ted. And he ended up signing that ball for me. And Uh, I still have it.
0: Oh, that's so fantastic. So when you get to heaven and uh, your dad and mom are there, I know your dad was an accomplished chef and there was no shortage of good food at your house. What's the first thing you want your parents to make you when you see them? (laughs) Jeez. My dad cooked really good prime rib and fried chicken. So... (laughs) That might be an awesome meal, believe me. (laughs) 19-year Hall of Fame career, 284 wins, 3,192 strikeouts. And here's the the most amazing statistic to me of all, because this will never be accomplished again, 267 complete games. What a career.
2: It was a lot of fun doing it, Uh, Mike. uh, You you know, you train your body, you train your mind to, to go out there and perform. And year after year numbers just keep piling up and i was very fortunate enough to to stay healthy uh, and i've told that a lot of times at appearances or at banquets that, that i attend that health is so so very important staying healthy going out there and at the time with the cubs especially we only had a four-man rotation so i was one of those four starters staying healthy and going out there and performing and, and pitching and trying to win ball games and, and when i look back Health, as I said, is so very, very important.
0: And I know you're a proud Canadian, always have been. And so it must have been so meaningful that when you do go to the Hall of Fame, you are the first Canadian to be inducted.
2: Yeah, that was that was an important uh, situation uh, or a day that I was the first Canadian inducted. And now I've got company with Larry Walker. Finally, after something <laughs> like 20, 25 to 30 years, yeah, yeah. finally he got inducted. Be, because, I mean, he was a great ball player. But a lot of times, as you know, Reporters bypass a lot of, I think, really good players. And you're on the ballot for the first five years after you retire. And then you're hoping to get that 75% of the vote. And unfortunately, he just didn't get it. And finally, on the Veterans Committee, he gets an opportunity to get in the Hall of Fame. And I know he's another proud Canadian.
0: Man, it's been fun. Fergie, thanks so much for the time. Looking back at these old ballparks and your incredible career, wish you and your family. Nothing but the best here in the new year.
2: I appreciate it. Thanks. Same to you, Mike.
0: All right, so a couple of quick footnotes as we wrap up this episode. In the 1967 All-Star game at Anaheim Stadium, Jenkins struck out not just Mickey Mantle, but a total of six of the best hitters in the American League. Mantle, Harbin Killebrew, Tony Canigliaro, Jim Fergosi, Rod Carew, and Tony Oliva. In 1971, the year he won the Cy Young, he was 24 and 13. He threw 30 complete games, walked 37 and struck out 263 and 325 innings pitched. In May of 2022, Fergie became the fifth member of the Chicago Cubs organization to have a statue outside of Wrigley Field, joining former teammates Ernie Banks, Ron Santo, Billy Williams, and legendary broadcaster Harry Carey. Now, of course, in a 30-minute episode, there's going to be some things that we just won't have time to cover, but the amount of personal tragedy that he's had to endure in his lifetime, it's unimaginable. There's a great documentary that's airing occasionally uh, in this offseason on MLB Network called Glory and Grief, the Fergie Jenkins story. And uh, it does a great job of detailing the triumphs and some of the unspeakable, heartbreaking situations that he has had to face in his lifetime. Definitely worth checking out if you get a chance to watch that. Real quickly, I would like to thank Scott Crawford from the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, because without him, this interview would not have happened. Thank you so much, Scott, for your help. Lost Ballparks is produced by Xavier Guerra, Alex Kemp, Mike Dunn, John Carter, Kyle Schmidt, Mandy Zavlakis, Mike Lipinski, and Ryan Beard. Looking forward to being back with you on the first Wednesday of February, February 7th, for another episode of Lost Ballparks.